Hey there, welcome back to The Kicker, CJR's weekly podcast about journalism and media. I'm David Uberti, your host and a Columbia Journalism Review staff writer. Today is Tuesday, May 23rd, and we got a jam-packed show for you this week. First, we'll run through the media stories we're watching at CJR, from cable ratings to the Seth Rich conspiracy to journalist drinking habits, just not my own. Then, we'll discuss breaking news coverage of the horrific attack on British concert-goers this week and terrorism generally. Finally, I'll be talking to Clara Jeffrey, editor-in-chief of Mother Jones, about covering the Trump campaign's Russian connections and her magazine's interesting experiment with reader-funded journalism. Before we begin, some brief housekeeping. First, I apologize we've been jumping around a bit in terms of which day of the week we release our shows. I know I have a general schedule of when I listen to certain podcasts. But school's out for summer, meaning that journalism students here at Columbia no longer have a monopoly on studio space. So we're thinking through which day of the week we'd like to drop new episodes. Please stay tuned. Also, send any suggestions for future guests or discussion topics our way to thekicker at cgr.org. We are but a few humble podcasters, and we need your ideas. Once again, that's thekicker at cgr.org. Joining me on my first two segments this week is CGR senior editor Christy Chisholm making a triumphant return to the kicker. Christy, welcome back. I like that it's triumphant. Thank very, you. Very Not triumph- just a return. I only make triumphant <laughs> returns. Always. And then there's also Pete Vernon, a CGR Delacorte fellow, making a slightly less triumphant appearance in his typical podcast seat. Pete, yeah. what's up? No excitement here. <laughs> <laughs> So Pete writes CGR's daily newsletter, The Media Today, which you can all subscribe to at CGR.org. He's our man on the street and will help us make sense of the news. Pete, what are you watching this week in the world of media? Big news on the street is uh, cable news, that we have a new leader, new leader in the clubhouse for the past week of a ton of Trump news, a ton of uh, breaking stories from mostly print magazines. But the way those have been covered has led to MSNBC overtaking its competitors and finishing first in total viewers and in the coveted demographic. Part of that is thanks to Rachel Maddow, who has become the most watched host in cable news. CNN overall was number one in the daytime in the demographic, with Jake Tapper leading the way. Fox News was number three in primetime, and that's the big change. Uh, And there's a few reasons for that one of which is that they simply haven't been covering the news in the same way their two competitors have. Right. And then just to recap, I mean, as we all know, MSNBC skews liberal, particularly during primetime. Fox News is wedded to the Republican Party, uh, if only unofficially. And as we said, there's just been so many stories about the Trump administration and damning stories at that, that it seems that they've just totally shirked their duty to pay lip service, at least, to the idea that they're a news organization. Right. And MSNBC has really capitalized on some of the liberal interest and outrage that has surrounded the Trump administration, and they've seen the results of that. And I just wanted to, before we move on to the next topic, I just want to mention that there was a Pew survey out this month that measured Republican and Democrats' thoughts on whether criticism from the media kept political leaders in line. Last year, both groups answered in the affirmative around a 75% clip. This year, the number of Democrats has jumped to 89%, while has dropped among Republicans to only 42%. Since Trump's election, Republicans have become far more likely to think that the media prevents political leaders from doing their jobs. And I think that obviously puts outlets that are wedded to a political party like Fox News in a weird spot, it's easier to sell aggressive, critical journalism than it is defensive journalism. Right. And while Fox has been on the defensive, one of the stories that they've chosen to cover instead of the Trump, White House, Washington news. Trip, trip, trip. Yeah. has <laughs> been uh, 
this this kind of crazy conspiracy theory that had been floating around on the fringes of the internet since last July that has newfound life. And just to back up a bit, basically the outlines of the story are that last July 10th, in the early morning hours, a 27-year-old Democratic National Committee staffer was shot, killed. His name was Seth Rich. And two, essentially two weeks later, the WikiLeaks first dump happened. So there were some, again, in the far fringes of the right-wing media universe that said, oh, well, here's a connection. Julian Assange made some cryptic comments to a Dutch broadcaster that seemed to link him or suggest that he had been involved in giving those documents. And while that was floating around for a while, it found new life last Monday. Mm -hmm. Certainly picked up with, by the likes of Infowars and other sites, including Breitbart, and then most prolifically by Sean Hannity, who is one of Donald Trump's biggest fans on Fox News. And he has continued to perpetuate this conspiracy theory that this DNC staffer was actually WikiLeaks source, which, if true, would in some ways absolve the Trump campaign of colluding with Russia's, which is obviously the draw. Right. And Hannity really has been the, the chief force for this, as we've heard at the 10 p.m. hour. Uh, basically for the past week, every single night. And welcome back to Hannity. Questions continue to swirl around the mysterious murder of DNC staffer Seth Rich. Now, following Rich's death, there was suspicion that he may have been the source of the DNC emails that were... Just to be to clear, Wikileaks. there's no evidence for this at all. And Seth Rich's family has come out with a cease and desist letter to the investigator kind of at the center of these spurious reports. It's really irresponsible. It is not journalism, and Sean Hannity will say he's not a journalist. I don't know what he is exactly, but what he's doing is damaging, it's dishonest, and it has taken over the right-wing media universe. What he is is a veil for the Trump administration because, you know, it's no coincidence, I'm sure, that this all came, like, resurfaced again last Monday as, like, every day around 5 p.m. we've been getting bombarded by news alerts and, like, the next big breaking news and the next part of this kind of drip, drip, drip scandal. Then suddenly Fox News, who doesn't like to cover that, they have another big story that they've chosen to cover instead. It happens to be made up, but it's still, right. you know. And just for the record, <laughs> right before we came into the broadcast studio, uh, Fox News retracted at least one Seth Rich story from its website. No word yet on whether Hannity will similarly be reprimanded. Then the third story, shifting gears a bit to something lighter, is a study that was published by a kind of business and management consultant doctor who surveyed several dozen journalists. This is not a big sample size, but the results were certainly interesting. It was about how journalists use their brains or exhibit behavior that prevents them from using their brains. Uh, apparently, journalists drink a lot. We don't consume enough water and we're over caffeinated. Apparently, hardly any water at all. Apparently, less than 5% of all the respondents have the daily required amount of water. I actually think that it's hilarious. We, I think all journalists would probably laugh at it some because we all see truth in it. If you look in any newsroom, probably anywhere in the U.S. at least, you're going to find a fridge with at least a few beers in it. You're going to find a snack table full of carbs and sugar. Lots um, of lots of coffee floating around the office. Coffee constantly, just but, the flow of coffee. There's more demand for that than anything else. I have and a then, pint of whiskey yeah. in my desk drawer. 
we all start the day without pint of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. And what it found, in addition to uh, too much caffeine and too much alcohol, was that while journalists have a lot of stress in their daily lives, they also handle it well. They're used to deadlines. But yeah, it was, it was kind of a funny topic for journalists to riff on, for all of us to appreciate that, yeah, this sounds about right. And so when we are done this podcast, we will all head to the journalist bar where everybody knows each other's names. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see. On Monday night, news broke of an explosion at an Ariana Grande concert in Manchester, England. A heinous act of violence that left 22 people dead and is now being called a terrorist attack. We in the media community have unfortunately created a playbook in such situations. We'll discuss later if it's the right playbook. And within moments, news alerts were popping into mobile devices, breaking news chirons were flashing on television screens, and social media was awash in information on the incident, much of it false. I'll confess that I struggled when thinking about whether to write about this incident this morning. There have been so many of these horrendous crimes that it just seems like there's nothing new to say about them. But organizations that cover breaking news don't have that luxury of choice. And it seems like these senseless acts of violence aren't stopping anytime soon. Sadly, it doesn't seem like they are. I think the question that a lot of newsrooms are struggling with now is that, like you said, a lot of breaking newsrooms and larger newsrooms don't have the privilege of deciding whether they're going to cover a story they have to cover a story. And so the question that we have to really ask ourselves is, how are we going to cover the story? And how are we going to do the victim's justice or or help move something forward in a positive way or, I don't know, to do a service? What we were talking about a lot in the newsroom this morning was, you know, whether the images coming out of the attack yesterday were helping or hurting. And that's a conversation that we're all pretty familiar with at this point, unfortunately. Right. And there are just so many images, right? This is something that's relatively new in the last few years with the prevalence of everyone having a smartphone with video capabilities, with social media. There's such a flood of evidence anytime something happens that sifting through that at breakneck speed, when these things are already being discussed online and in social media, Newsrooms, especially cable news stations, have really difficult decisions to make. Yeah, no one's saying that these are easy decisions to make, but it, it certainly seems like we can do a, a better job. When when this news broke, I got the news alert on my phone. I was with my roommate, and we started discussing it, and then we discussed whether we were going to go into Twitter to follow the news. And I said immediately, no, that's bad, because most of the information you see on Twitter is going to be false in a breaking news situation. But then when I went through Facebook, you know, you're just bombarded with the Im- these images uh, of people running, people screaming. These are often from people at the scene who took these images on their cell phones and whatnot. So, I, I mean, I guess I just don't, I don't see the news value of just blaring those images on a f- sort of a rolling loop, whether it's on cable television or whether it's in, you know, your Facebook Live video stream. Absolutely. It's a really difficult question. We've written about this on, you know, in CJR in the past. I know a lot of other organizations have written about this as well. And the kind of, A, the kind of fatigue that you get from seeing images like that and how it might desensitize you to seeing those images in the future or desensitize you in general to these kinds of events. And and B, whether promoting images in that way, which is what it is, we're promoting them by publishing them, by promoting images in that way, we are in some way furthering the cause of the terrorists kind of at the heart of these incidents. Someone in the meeting this morning said that it was like, 
writing a check to ISIS, basically. But I, mean, I mean, we have to be right. I mean, it, they certainly take into account the the media ripple effects of, of these attacks. I mean, like as you said, Pete, everybody has a, a smartphone now. And in, in addition to that, news organizations are addicted to posting video content, especially on Facebook, and Facebook incentivizes them to do that. So I, I think that, you know, the impact, just the visual impact of seeing terror has yeah. just been magnified to an extent that it never would have been 10 years ago. Absolutely. And that's like, you know, it's a question that broadcast organizations have to deal with on a level that other journalists and newsrooms don't have to deal with. I mean, they need video in order to create their mediums. And so when there is all this video available and you're making these split second decisions, you know, I mean, I think that's a, it's a harder choice probably for them. And you can see the argument on both sides for publishing images like this or not publishing these images. You know, we certainly don't have a solution in the, like, you know, we're thinking about what to do, but we don't have a solution. I think it does come down to news organizations talking about, it's like, what's your disaster management plan, right? Right. And it seems like watching cable news last night that there is a playbook that exists right now. And the parts of it are, there's breaking news, here's the baseline information we know. There, there will be a video of the event, usually from user-generated content from those cell phone videos. There will be an anchor talking over that video. Then there'll be a call with the eyewitness while that video, again, loops in the background. Then they'll bring in a terrorism expert or a political commentator to talk about this incident's impact on the larger conversation. I don't know which of those pieces is broken, but it does feel like there's something gruesome and something excessive about having all of that happen with these images playing in the background with so little actual information being available to us, but right. I don't know how to fix that. It just it just feels gratuitous, right? you know? I, th I think the root problem is that talk outpaces the reporting process. So in, in situations you have such as these, I mean, Pete, you pulled up a clip of Shep Smith uh, basically narrating user-generated footage from the scene. I mean, it seems, it's very clear that the, these images are just beamed in to, you know, anchors who have yet to see them they don't really know what's going on. And that was very clear from the case of, of Shep Smith, who's by all accounts a, a real newsman at Fox. I want to show you the first video that we have from outside. I want to tell you about what you're about to see. You'll, it's a dash cam video from inside, maybe a police car, we're not sure, but it's looking at a brick building. To the left, right, and he goes on to narrate what's happening in that video, so kind of, you assume, through an earpiece, somebody telling him, or maybe he's just glimpsed hear, it when he was off camera out of the, the shot. Of then hear a noise, then hear the man inside the car. Let's listen. It's difficult. I don't envy that position at all. And part of the issue is that these broadcast organizations are competing in a media ecosystem that prioritizes speed where this information is already available on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever it is. Again, are they just supposed to not report it? I don't know. I think the other thing that I, I think is, is pretty sickening, and, and this gets back to your point about sort of the model being broken, is when you reach the stage where they've reported all available information and they move on to the talking heads, whether that's a security expert or whether that's a, a political expert, and too often these are political analysts who are commenting on these things, and the, the talk always devolves into the political impact of this uh, through the context of whether this is terrorism, quote unquote. And that just seems sick to me, like in, in the moment of this extreme carnage, this just horrible 
horror, particularly in the case of, of last night, which was a lot of kids who got hurt during this concert. It just seems to feed into a lot of these darker and I think more damaging media behaviors that we see in a lot of cases. I mean, it turns out that this particular attack was terrorism. Um, so that is, that is a debate worth having of how to respond, et cetera. But I think in the moment, just being consumed by what boils down to a political question uh, is, is just too much for me. Well, and also just the idea that people are sitting around hypothesizing to each other about what may have happened when someone just, like, multiple people died, people's loved ones just died. I mean, that is the kind of thing that gives journalism a, a bad name, right? Because it makes us all seem like a bunch of sensationalists. You know, that's not what it's supposed to be about. You know, and I think that people who are put in the position to do that, I, I don't know that they know what else to do either. I mean, it's their job to be on the air. They have to be talking about what's going on. They try to get experts to help them navigate that space. So it's, it is, it's a really difficult question. I don't know what the answer is, but I know that the result, like Pete said, is like, it's a broken system. It's not doing the job that we're all striving to do. And I don't know that we're adding any good to it. You know, the public service do no harm. I don't know that it's accomplishing any of that. You may have heard over the last few weeks, thanks in large part to stellar reporting from the New York Times, Washington Post, and others, that the FBI is investigating the Trump campaign's ties to Russia and his administration's subsequent handling of the situation. But you may forget that the first publication to report on the FBI's actions all the way back in October 2016 was Mother Jones magazine. Joining me to discuss the state of a story that has reached its umpteenth level of complexity and how Mother Jones has launched a reader-funded project to push it forward is the magazine's editor-in-chief, Clara Jeffrey. Clara, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So I just want to, just given the torrent of scoops over the last couple of weeks, it, <laughs> I, I just would like to reach back into our memory banks a little bit, way back to October, uh, when your man in Washington, David Korn, he reported that a former intelligence agent had given the FBI some information about Donald Trump. It was one of the first bombshell reports, uh, basically blowing the story open. And I'm just kind of curious to sort of look back on that. From your perspective as an editor, how do you prepare a story like that for publication? Obviously, you have to be very careful with wording and whatnot. So I'm just kind of curious what the process was of getting that ready to go. Yeah, I mean, just to, to remind your listeners, um, this was essentially a story summarizing parts of what is now commonly referred to as the dossier of a former MI6 spy named Christopher Steele. And we got a hold of the story. And... These were obviously unsubstantiated allegations that we had not been the one gathering. So we summarized some of them. We did not get into what, you know, now everybody knows as the P-tape episode. <laughs> the golden showers. Um, because, yes. yeah, we didn't, you know, we, we felt that was not fair to Mr. Trump without any kind of substantiation. Um, but, you know, basically talked about how it is commonly the practice of the FSB, which is the inheritor to the KGB, to gather um, information and Comcrat material on people of influence who visit Russia, and that that can include things like a sort of honey trap scenario, but also just they, they gather intelligence, they try and get compromising material on people to, uh, and, and sometimes, you know, it's their practice to kind of hang on to that for a long time and use it when it suits their needs. Um, so that was essentially the gist of the story that we told at the time, um, a little over 10 days before the election, I think. And, 
you know, at the time, there was obviously a lot going on. Um, mm. I think it's safe to say that many in the media and elsewhere didn't think that Donald Trump was going to win. Um, the story got a fair bit of attention, but I think really blew up, you know, a month or two later when it became known that the FBI was taking this more seriously. And BuzzFeed and then CNN kind of quickly reported essentially the story that we had. And in the case of BuzzFeed, uh, printed essentially the pretty much the entire dossier. Right. And, and it seemed to snowball from there, particularly in the last month or so. And, I, and I'm kind of curious, I mean, we'll get into your funding uh, in a bit, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm curious, you know, as a magazine editor, you now have newspapers such as the New York Times and the Washington Post, their attention is not consumed by the daily breathless coverage of the campaign. A lot of their resources are directed at, at this. So how do you try to pick your spots uh, with this story? You know, you, you guys obviously put out a print magazine, but obviously also have a, a website. The New York Times is a huge organization. By comparison, how do you just sort of navigate that, just given the competitive nature of the story at this point? Well, for a couple, in a couple ways. I mean, first of all, David and some of our other reporters coming in on uh, Trump's corruption and conflict of interest have been on the story, you know, as long or longer than anybody else. So it's true that now that the Post and the Times in particular are kind of aiming the full force of their powers at this story, which is awesome. And, um, you know, it's the greatest newspaper war that that America's ever seen in right. the best possible way. Right. You know, we're not alone in this space anymore, but that's not to say that the sort of sourcing and analysis that, that we can do um, won't come into play and hasn't come into play in, in the interim. I think what we can also do as a magazine is, well, as the magazine that we are, is kind of step back and give people the full analysis of it. So one of the things that we're doing, our upcoming issue that we're probably going to release much or all of it in the next couple of weeks early, um, basically, you know, provides readers with a guide to follow all this craziness. Right. Um, because it is so complicated. There's so many players. There's so many things that are partially known. Um, right. That's, that's one of my ta- big uh, takeaways from the story as well. Yeah. I mean, there's so much smoke from all different angles. I, I just feel at some time, at some points that I feel almost blinded by smoke, and I don't even know what I'm looking at it in some cases. Exactly. And I think people really need assistance from journalists kind of guiding their way through that. And I think one of the things that that we have traditionally done very well is provide, we also have an online timeline kind of laying out you know, every facet of this story. Um, and we're taking that kind of analysis into kind of print distillation and providing readers with just a sort of, you know, call it cliff notes, call it whatever you want, right. but like a, a way to sort of understand the players, the timelines, sure. the various points of inquiry sure. um, in a way that I think magazines are traditionally can be very good at. Right. So maybe two weeks or so now, I think you guys announced a new project to actually fund this work, to bolster mm-hmm. your team uh, investigating the Trump administration, Trump and campaign's Russia ties uh, and subsequent handling of that. Tell me exactly what you're doing on the funding side and, and what you've accomplished thus far. Well, um, this goes back even before this project. I mean, it's been a real it's been a real effort of ours in the past year to kind of explain to readers um, what it takes in both time and treasure to produce the work that we do. And we do it for a couple reasons. I mean, A, um, we think that, you know, uh, democracy could die in darkness. And <laughs> it is, yeah. it is, um, it's really important for readers to understand, like, what journalism takes and 
the resources that we need to do it and the kind of economic pressures that we and the entire industry are under. So we we do it as a kind of fundraising effort for our own part, but also a sort of broader educational effort to really explain to people right. <laughs> what happens in the in the amount of time and, and money it takes right. to do these kind of and, investigations or and, like a big prison investigation or whatever. Right. And correct me if I'm mis- misremembering, but you also had a very interesting, you know, uh, after you ran that big prison story last year by Shane Bauer, where he was undercover as a private prison guard, you asked readers, you basically laid out for them very plainly, hey, this cost whatever hundreds of thousands of dollars. We only got X number of dollars in advertising yep. revenue. Can you help us? And that, that I That's thought was right. a very po- powerful way of just being, you know, upfront with folks and saying this is actually what it takes to do accountability journalism. Right. And I mean, so in that case, we sort of said it it took, you know, around, you know, conservatively, frankly, $350,000 to to mount that entire reporting, fact-checking, and legal effort to, to produce that story. And by the time we, we published that article sort of explaining it, we had made about $5,000 on uh, in in digital advertising on that piece, which, you know, at that point was probably already closing in on a million readers. So right. it's just, you know, I, I think readers really don't understand and why should they? Because for so much, you know, for so much of journalism's history, it was vastly subsidized by classified and other forms of advertising. Right. And so we didn't price it accordingly, um, you know, and and I think people do need to understand what it takes because there are fewer, you know, there are 40% fewer journalists working out there than there were a decade ago. Um, and, you know, I think we've seen in many ways in the past few months the direct result of that, that loss of bench depth. Right. So now in a similar call to action, you're asking readers for, I think, a half million dollars to support your, your Russia reporting and build out your team a little bit more. I mean, how are you pursuing that? Is this, is this mostly asking for small donations, trying to get a broad base of readers to, to chip in? Or are you also pursuing sort of foundation money and, and nonprofit funding as well? You know, we had one major donor, Rob Glazer, kind of come forward and, and offer as a part of an effort to, to raise this money to, to give us a chunk of that. Um, but no, we're asking, you know, we, we believe in the power of, um, of, you know, individuals to fund journalism as well as political campaigns or whatever. I mean, that's what it's going to take. It can't rely on one or two very affluent people or a few foundations to do it because, frankly, they don't have the resources and their attentions change over time. Sure. Um, and if people want institutions to stick around and to grow and thrive, there has to be a broader base of support and it has to be steady. Right. And so, you know, as a magazine, we, we have print subscribers, obviously, but we have, you know, we have a little more than 200,000 print subscribers and we have 15 million monthly readers online. So already there's like a big discrepancy right. in, in those numbers. Um, and, you know, like I said earlier, this is also part of a sort of broader educational effort to explain that this is true of all journalists. Right. Um, Certainly. So, and and, yeah. and how have you fared with the with the Russia fundraising thus far? Can you release numbers on on what you've raised? Um, it's gone very well. We have, we you know we're closing in on that goal, um, and um, are considering uh, even hitting a stretch goal after that. So I think that you know, as the events of the last week have shown, this is you know it's it's a real crisis that's facing the country sure. and. People want to support journalism that takes it on.
Right. And I'm curious more broadly with reader-funded journalism. I think that's mm-hmm. obviously proliferating among the big national players. You you guys have had great success with this over the last year in particular. A handful of other magazines have as well. What do you think the key to that is? Do you think that's something that's possible at all publications that have a devoted readership? Or, I mean, does it does it matter more on how you market yourself? Or is it being open about your politics up front or doing hard-hitting investigations or some combination of all those things? I mean, it's probably some combination of all of those things, but I would say, like, you know, so obviously things that are particularly investigative or hard-hitting on national politics have gotten, you know, we we started with Shane's piece and even before that and through the election and and then also got the Trump bump post-election. But I think this same, this same equation is true whether we're talking about literary journalism or anything that if you want it to be around you have to figure out a way to help pay for it the ad markets are cratering on every front some news organizations are trying to make up for this by essentially becoming ad agencies in their own right you know doing native advertising and that will work out for some of them and some of them will just become ad agencies Hmm. in the end. But for many, it's just not, you know, it's going to go the way of many other efforts to sort of figure out a a trick to pay for this other than just readers doing it, you know, um, fancy apps or whatever. And all of those things have sort of fell short. And the way I look at it, I think it really is partly this broader educational effort that, you know, we have to explain to people what it costs. And folks pay $100, dollars or more a month for their cable bills and you know i think they can netflix you know, spotify them, they can yeah figure out a way to, right. to pay for journalism as well right yeah certainly uh just to broaden it out a bit um mm-hmm. with broader media coverage of national politics now I'm, I'm curious on what you think about sort of sustaining outrage i feel as if among a lot of people that I talk to, these are mostly mainstream journalists. There's sort of trepidation that that the outrage meter has gotten kind of out of whack with Trump. And I think we ha- we can have an argument about whether we should be outraged, like whether we should just let that happen. But I'm, I'm just kind of curious on, on whether that's something that you think about, sort of throwing the outrage levels off kilter, just given that Trump has done stuff that just outrages so many people. I think the outrage is proportional to the things that are outrageous, frankly. Right. Um, now, that doesn't mean that every single American feels that way or that everybody has the ability or desire to kind of keep up on it all. Um, I do think it's important to sort of present to readers who are going to follow every single tick of a story as well as those who want to just get a weekly update or an occasional like distillation. And that, right. again, is, I mean, newspapers and cable news programs excel at this happened right now, right. you know, or we just broke this story. Sure. And I think that that is immensely valuable and we do that as well. But I think it's also important to sort of step back and synthesize for people. So that's what we're trying to do in part. You know, we're also seeing a a real desire to re-engage um, in the civic space that was triggered by the election and some of the things that Trump's been doing. But I think we'll last longer and have, you know, have consequences we can't quite imagine with the amount of interest and attention that people are paying into sort of all parts of civic engagement and political engagement. Mm, right. Well, Clara Jeffrey of Mother Jones, thanks so much for being on the show, and we wish you best of luck uh, reaching your fundraising goals for that new project. We'll be watching it closely. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Bye-bye.
That was our show. Thanks for kicking with us. I want to give a special thanks to Clara Jeffrey, editor-in-chief of Mother Jones Magazine, and also my colleagues Christy Chisholm and Pete Vernon. Go to cjr.org, become a member of the Columbia Journalism Review, and please subscribe to, comment on, and share episodes of this podcast. That's really what keeps this thing afloat. Thank you so much for kicking it with us. We'll see you next week.